هاي كيفكم ان شاء الله كلكم بخير جدا متحمس اليوم على اللايف هكون مع دكتور امير كرم اول ذا واي فروم سان دييغو هنتكلم عن التجميل هو من اهم الدكاتره عالميا في شد الوجه وهنتكلم عن هيز فيرتيكال ريستور شيء جدا معروف ومهم فاي مراه عندها اي اهتمام بخصوص عمليات الشد الدكتور هذا هو من اهم الدكاتره في Hi, Doctor. Hi, Nada. How are you? Good morning. Yeah, thank you. Great to see you. And thank you for the invitation. And thank you for actually being here. Actually, uh, several of my followers have asked me to actually do an interview with you. Oh, And many have sent me your work on a private DMs. They're like, he's amazing. He's amazing. And I'm like, honestly, it was such a pleasure to actually connect with you and have you on my platform. Seriously. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. I look forward to chatting about this a little bit. I know there's yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of interest in this uh, overall concept, and uh, hopefully, we'll bring some clarity to the to the uh, to the table today. And to be honest, honestly, I've just been reading your like technically, I've been reading your resume, and it's just so impressive. Double board certified in American reconstructive facial surgery and face and 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 the um, head and neck. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Otolaryngology. something. Otolaryngology, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, seriously, amazing. And you have a book that you wrote about uh, rejuvenation and aging. Such an amazing track record, seriously. And uh, you've done so many surgeries that are all about the face. So I want to ask you this question. When did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? And that's a start. And why did you choose the face? Yeah, that's a, that's a question that comes up a lot. And actually, um, so my, my story um, starts with, uh, with my mom, actually. She had a uh, um, heart condition that, that was diagnosed when, when I was born. And so most of my childhood, she was in and out of the hospitals with, uh, with, this, uh, with this heart issue. And then by the time I was a high school student, her heart was getting you know, weaker and weaker and weaker, basically um, to the point where the only option for her was a heart transplant. And so right in the beginning of my, my college uh, years, she had this heart transplant. And for me, it was a, such a powerful uh, moment because you know, I was watching my, my mom. I was a single child, so it was, you know, we had a very strong um, relationship. And to watch her basically become bedridden and, and nearly die for, you know, um, up to a year of just being in the bed the whole time and then have this transplant and then all of a sudden, you know, have life and, and uh, uh, be healthy. And, and at that moment, I said, you know what, I want to be a surgeon. I want to be able to do the same things um, for other people. And so I changed all of my majors around and everything and just went purely into uh, the goal of becoming a surgeon and becoming a doctor. And uh, for four years after that, I was all in on becoming a heart surgeon. That's what I thought I was going to be until I uh, started medical school. And one day, um, a particular lecturer gave this beautiful talk on the field of facial plastic surgery and, and all the different aspects of it, from reconstruction to cosmetic to noses to cancer reconstruction, all these different things, trauma. And honestly, I, I, it, 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 uh, it was a very emotional moment because I thought I was supposed to be a heart surgeon, but yet I'm, I'm, you know, I found this new uh, field that was more in line, I think, with what I think is my, my sort of strengths. You know, I had a creative side of me. I love the uh, problem solving, you know, aspects of it and the ability to work on somebody's face, which I know is so, so important for people, um, ultimately, for a lot of different reasons, regardless of what the condition is, um, and help them with their confidence and, and their self image and all that kind of stuff. So I started to explore it. And then I fell in love with that field. And, uh, and basically, you know, went on a journey from, from, med from the beginning of medical school all the way towards uh, um, to the end, you know, that, that kept me on that track. So it was, it was, pretty, it was, it was pretty interesting um, to, to decide you wanted to be a facial surgeon that early in the, in the process of education because it allowed me to constantly be learning about the face and, you know, all the different aspects of it. And I think it gave me a huge advantage because of that. You know what's also nice about plastic surgery? I've, I, it's like an art. You know, there are so yeah. many surgeries, but like plastic surgery, I think, especially the face is an art because you can't really afford any mistakes because it's your face. You can't hide it with your shirt or your jacket. Or, so if you make a mistake, yeah. it's actually a big. So you really need to be an artist and good with your hands and really love what you do. But yeah. another thing I ask you, you know, uh, a lot of doctors say, I do face, I do body, I do lipo, I do this, but... So you, now it's it's actually a lot of doctors say you, you're either good at you're good at one thing that you do and you can do other things, but you, you have to specialize in a specific thing. Do you agree with that or what do you think? You know, I, I'm I'm a, personally I'm a huge believer in specialization. You know, that was one of my um, 
very early um, realizations. I mean, for me, I mean, I went into, I decided to be a facial because the only thing in plastic surgery that interested me was the face. There was nothing else about, you know, the body or anything of that kind of stuff that even remotely interested me. So it, for me, it was because of that. But the, the question is a very, um, very good one. There's a lot of research actually um, on the topic of when somebody is specialized, whether they're a dentist, whether they're a hernia surgeon, whether they're, you know, a very specialized area in heart surgery, regardless, when somebody does something every single day, consistently, regularly, they naturally become better at it, especially procedural things, because there's always complications, there's always, you know, risks of certain things going wrong. But when somebody is fluid and, and has, has had the experience of doing something over and over again, the risks go down, the safety, you know, goes up and the expected outcome is much higher. So this is one of those things that, that I think uh, is true for, for any part of medicine or any type of procedural thing. It's, it's generally better to be with somebody who is doing something repetitively over and over again. Okay, regarding, uh, I'm gonna talk about this because you know, every doctor has a name that, that uh, like for example, like uh, Dr. Keo has the ponytail uh, facelift. Yeah, yeah. You have the vertical restore facelift. Yes, yes. And you have the, What's the difference between the uh, the vertical restore and the vertical prevent facelift, and what why is what's the name what what differentiates? What is it yeah sure yeah that's, that, yeah yeah absolutely so so here there's a couple things um, a few sort of important points here number one my evolution um, you know with with the face uh, facial rejuvenation was always a little different than most of my um, my colleagues one is I from the very beginning I re realized that the the proper vector for re, uh, rejuvenation is more vertical, you know, up and down. And when a patient and a person sits in front of you and they say, hey, um, you ask them what's bothering you. So they say, this is bothering me and this is what I want. They kind of go upward like this with their face, right? It's yeah, a they vertical. Face, yeah. they, they will. So what's, what's I, and I realized that very early again, because I was, you know, I was focused in on, on these issues. So I re realized that in all, almost all of the facelifts that were taught, you know, techniques are all more or less horizontal. They go sideways. They go, they go side to side. That's kind of by definition, a facelift is one that takes the face and goes sideways. So the SMAS lifts and, you know, a lot of the different types of lifts that we hear about, they're all more or less sideways. And the vertical nature of it is, is an important aspect of it uh, and creating a very natural and, and normal look. The other aspect of it is the um, aging process, I realized after 10, 12 years of doing it, included the corners of the brow, included the mid face, included the jawline and the neck and almost every patient. It's rare that you have, because the face of by definition is a jawline procedure. It's one that tightens up the jawline. Yet there's these other aspects that are aging simultaneously. So I decided um, you know, to kind of up my, my outcomes by exploring somewhere around uh, 2016, 2017, explore you know, my outcomes and see where the shortcomings were and how I could make the outcomes better. So a couple of things I realized, number one is I always had to include this, this upper third of the face as part of it. The second thing that was missing in my previous technique is I wasn't getting a good mid-face lift out of it. And then you the neck, I, feel, I realized that the, the this section right here, okay. the mid-face, yeah. And then the neck in almost everyone needs to be as thoroughly treated as possible because the last thing people want is three, four, five years after their, their lift, all of a sudden see their neck start to, to sag a lot. So, um, so what I did was basically I changed my technique to include an approach called the deep plane, which is, you know, it's, it's something that's been around since the 1980s. But the beauty of the deep plane is it releases the ligaments of the mid-face, it releases a lot of the ligaments and allows you to address the mid-face. But I wanted to, to address the neck and the lateral brow in every single patient. And I also wanted to tilt this thing a little bit more vertically. So that's basically where the concept of the vertical restore came into play. It's, it's addressing four different areas. It includes a deep plane, which I think is the most, um, you know, sort of long lasting and durable technique, um, especially for this region. And then just do things that are very um, more or less uh, aggressive and complete in the neck to get the necks to be as good as they can be in every single case. Uh, and I think when you put all that together, it becomes a unique procedure. And that's where the, the, the term vertical restore came into play, because it's not okay. fair to call it a facelift when it's so different in so many different aspects than a facelift. And, you know, the other aspect is when sometimes when you have these terms that people throw around and then they go and they go and do it and they say, oh, I did a vertical restore. Or I did this or I did that. And they're not doing it the right way then it creates a dilution of the, of the outcome because at the end of the day, you want people to feel that if they're getting something done with that particular name, it's, it's at a certain standard and it uh, meets that you know, technical criteria. 
What about the eyes? When you do the vertical restore, does it include the eye lift of like the eyebrow area and the, the corner? Yeah, lift? exactly. Corner of the brow comes up as part of the vertical restore because again, when you go like this, you can see things bunch up right here. And so yeah. this part has to come up with it. Um, if you're truly going vertical, it's hard not to address this region because you're going to get so the bunches of the tissue. Together, it's like one thing. Together. I treat it as one, one unit as opposed to individual areas. So instead of having a patient um, say I'm doing a, a deep plane facelift, I'm doing a lateral brow lift, I'm doing a neck lift. You basically, this includes all four of them in every single, every single case. So it's actually a, a, a kind of a basket of procedures to address this entire laxity that happens because of the fascia. What about the double chin area? Does it get lifted when you do the neck part? Because you know, a lot of women come and have this area and even after a facelift, she tells you, I still have a lot of fat here. Yeah, so that, that's, that's one of the things that um, I think is one of the best parts about the vertical restore is that I do a very deep um, you know, contouring and dissection because there's, there's fat that's underneath the skin and then there's muscle. Um, and you know, when people liposuction, they're only addressing that superficial fat, which is there's not that much of it. But it, when people get that- sags. Some of time, sometimes it actually sags, you know, even yeah. after you do it. Well, that's, that's the whole thing. It has to be addressed. Um, the deeper uh, tissue compartments, the fat and the muscle have to be addressed. So in, in our vertical restores, we address that deeper segment. So we get that, you know, we, we minimize the amount of soft tissue there. And then because of the vertical nature of the lift, it pulls the muscle upward, which is really what needs to happen to hold the neck into place. So that looseness goes away. Because when you're going sideways, you're not getting any traction on the neck. I mean, you can just do it to yourself. When you go up like that, you see your neck, you know, really tightens up around the, uh, uh, that contour. And that's, that's one of the parts that's, um, that I wanted to really make sure was addressed thoroughly in every single case. So the next I think are, we go as, as heavy duty on them as possible. You got a question actually, uh, is there any portion of the vertical restore that you think still has room for improvement or any techniques that you are looking to incorporate into your technique? Interesting. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I mean, I'm always, 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 this has just been the way I've been um, from the very beginning, always looking for um, weaknesses and opportunities to improve things. Um, to be perfectly honest with you right now, I. I mean, it's been three, three and a half years or so since I've been doing just, you know, the vertical restore as, as its own approach and doing it every single day and seeing the outcomes every single day. I'm, I'm on the table as I'm doing it. I'm, I'm, there's a big smile on my face because it's the, the change that happens at the, at the moment is so profound and strong. Um, and, I, and seeing those patients after surgery so far, I have not seen any aspect of it that I really want to modify or improve yet. So at this point, I'm, I feel like... It, everything has come together in the right way. Plus, you know, in a lot of our cases, we include um, fat transfer, which I think is a really important part of rejuvenation. Um, and then being comprehensive and dressing the eyes and all that stuff at the same time. Some people have longer lips and we address that. So when you put it all together, the outcomes um, meet the criteria of making the person look like a younger version of themselves without looking like a different person, which is really ultimately, I think, what everyone wants when they, want in, they come into this thing. They want to look like themselves, but just a, a younger version. And the question is, do you, do you also insert fat during this procedure to the, during the facelift? I, I do. Um, I mean, it's a separate, you know, we, we examine each, each uh, of these procedures separately, but I would say probably 90 plus percent of the patients um, require a fat transfer for certain areas like under the eyes, above the eyes, the temples, sometimes the lips down here. Usually we don't put it in the cheek because when we do the vertical restore, the, the cheek volume increases. Um, but the, um, the, the aging process is a, is a lengthening of the fascia plus a loss of volume. So putting those two pieces together, you create, you know, what the person used to look like in, in the most uh, reliable way. And what about the vertical prevent? This is done for younger patients or? Yeah. So it is that, that, so what I realized, um, and I actually uh, did a post on this, uh, I think it was Saturday. Um, we had a 41 year old patient um, who, you know, had all the kind of like, early changes related to aging. She had volume loss. She had some laxity around her jawline. And, um, you know, that you, you, I think we look at that and we say that that's premature aging. We think of that as like somebody who's in their early forties and, and really in some ways it is in some ways it's not, because I think the, the vast majority of the people who are in their thirties and early forties who are using fillers and who are going down this kind of anti-aging route, many of them have changes that are, that are probably related to, you know, overall volume loss and probably a little bit of laxity that I think we think is premature. But if you really look at the continuum of aging, it probably is relatively normal aging. It's just at a different, uh, you know, it's happening a little bit sooner than most people 
um, happened. It's on the tail end of it. So the vertical prevent was, was um, my idea that I thought, you know what, instead of telling a person who's in their early 40s or even late 30s sometimes um, who's got the sagging and other, that you're too young for having surgery. We used to say this all the time. I used to say this all the time. Hey, come back in 10 years. The problem is you tell a patient like that who's already bothered by these changes to come back in 10 years, they're going to fill that 10-year gap with, with fillers and different things like that, which after 10 years of using these things repetitively creates these really unusual looks to people, unfortunately, you know, big sure. cheeks and heavy jawline. And we're not doing them any kind of a service by, by pushing them off just because of their age criteria. So vertical prevent is really designed for the people who are a little on the younger side, who don't really have neck involvement, but just laxity in, the, in this region. And, the uh, lower and part of the face? You mean the lower part? Yeah, yeah, well, this in the mid-face, right? And even this part of the, this area, but not really heavy on the neck. Because vertical restore, is because it includes the neck, is designed for neck involvement, even if the person's younger. But, if they, but a lot of times these younger patients just have kind of squaring of the jawline, kind of heaviness of the mid-face um, starting to, and they don't want to get in front of it. And the beauty of that procedure is, is it's, it's a very thorough, it's just like the vertical restore in terms of the deep plane approach, et cetera. It just doesn't, you know, go into the neck area because they don't have any neck involvement because of their age. Um, but it's, it's been a really, really uh, nice opportunity to help those people who are in that younger state who want to, you know, I think they have the right to feel young and beautiful at that stage of life. I mean, yeah. most, most people expect to feel that way and look that way when they're in their late 30s and, and 40s. Um, and uh, it's, been a, it's been a really nice addition to help those, those uh, patients out. And, and, um, and so that's, that's, been a, that's been a growing aspect of the practice, seeing, seeing people who are a little bit on the younger side. Yeah, like I'm 38 myself, and you know, I, I, I do see some sort of difference, especially in my lower uh, area. And I, I don't really think fillers are a solution because also a lot of doctors that are in your field, like surgeons, always say that extra filler is not a good thing when you want to actually do a facelift later on. Can you tell us your opinion about fillers, honestly? I'm yeah, certain. absolutely. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, again, my, my experience with it, uh, I used to do a lot of fillers. I mean, I, I mean, it was part of my practice. I had two um, half-day clinics a week that I would, I would do fillers. It's, I stopped that a couple of years ago, um, mainly because I, you know, I'm just doing more surgery now and I enjoy it. Um, but the, uh, but the, my, my philosophy on fillers are they replace volume. You have to think of it as replacing volume. Remember we said the face sags and it loses volume with age. Mm. Um, and so my, my sort of permanent or long-term solution for that is, is the fat transfer. But for, um, for patients who are, you know, in earlier stages of it or um, who are not ready for a fat transfer or, or just out there, and I, you know, obviously I can't do every fat transfer for, for people out there, I think the way to look at the filler is you do a little bit in a lot of different places as opposed to, as opposed to thinking of it as something that's going to lift your face, you look at it as something that's going to simply replace some lost volume. So, for example, when people lose a little bit of volume around their temples or lose a little bit under their eyes, a little bit around their mouth, you put a little bit in all these different areas, but you never make the mistake of thinking that if you pile it into your cheek and pile it into your jawline, that somehow you're going to you know, you get this lifted effect and you're going to not need to have surgery down the road because that is the unfortunate problem. And I actually posted a little uh, tutorial on that uh, uh, last week where one of my patients um, went in some, you know, to a place and they put it like 20 something CCs of filler um, into her face in, in, in the, um, with the goal of trying to lift her. Right. So that I'm opposed to the concept of using, I don't even use fat transfer to try to lift somebody. If somebody has laxity, I tell them, sorry, laxity is, is surgical volume is, is uh, you know, one of the filling modalities, whether fat transfer or filler. So the beauty of the filler is if you use it in small amounts in here and there, it can make a difference. But there is a point, I would say late 40s, early 50s, when things are starting to get loose and lax, that truly in those cases, that the fillers just become like a drop in the bucket. They don't really create much of a change. And those patients, um, oftentimes, both visually for me, you know, I used to do it, and for the patient, it's sort of underwhelming. And it doesn't, it doesn't feel like we've done anything meaningful in those cases. Because again, if you're, if you're looking at it from that, from that point of view, you're not going to get a real change. After a certain, okay, at what age do you recommend women to start like, you know, at what age, what's, what's like you know, the youngest age you start doing, uh, let's just say the vertical prevent? What age? So you it's, don't yeah, have so, an... No, it's, it's not an age thing. I mean, because there's sometimes there are people who are in their, um, you know, mid fifties that don't even need anything done. You know, it's not, and that's the, that's the interesting thing about it. I mean, if you took an average, 
our average patients are probably in their late 40s, early 50s. That's kind of like when they're coming in, they're saying things are really now starting to change. And it actually, it actually um, correlates very closely with, with uh, perimenopause and menopause where the, you know, estrogen drops and things like that. It's, it's thought to be one of the correlates of why you know, this, the onset of you know, this, this change happens, yeah. uh, this trigger. Um, but then, like we said, there are some people who it starts a little bit earlier. Um, and some are a little bit later, but I, I would say our, our, you know, probably our average youngest patients are like in their late thirties who've done prevent, um, early forties. And then, uh, and then the restore is more like mid, I'm sorry, late, late forties and, and above. It just kind of, it depends, but that's, that is more or less just dependent on the individual. You know, again, we see people who are like 60, they come in and they're just now starting to see aging, um, happen. And they're, they're lucky they've had, you know, that entire period of time without it. <laughs> Yeah, good genes, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, so so it's so I don't I don't uh, I don't have like a formula for when you should do it. I would just say probably the most important thing a younger person could do, um, and at any age I would say, but really it, it's focusing on their skin at a young age um, is probably the most important thing. And then at any age, getting started with it because that aspect is one thing you can actually prevent. You know the aging process, the skin aging process, which is kind of the third element of facial aging. There's volume sagging in skin. Um, but all the other things just sort of happen independently of anything that we do. Like we can't really re keep our faces from sagging when the time comes or losing volume when the time comes. Um, but the skin is one thing, sun protection and all that kind of stuff is really important. And then you just, you just approach these things very um, carefully and logically, most importantly, not uh, allowing your face to, to get, become deformed by some of these um, methods, like the too much True. filler or all that kind so of stuff. There's so much nowadays and, which is so sad. Another thing I want to ask you, how do you decide if this client needs a fat transplant or they need uh, a vertical restore or a vertical prevent? Because many, you know, the fat transplant thing is actually in our part of the world in the Middle East, very new. And a lot of people that do it sometimes, they, they, they're really worried about where they remove the fat from and it, would it look normal? And honestly, some of the work has been good and some work is like really off. So yeah. how do you, how do you, how, how can you decide which client does what and, how, yeah, yeah, that's basically. Yeah, no, no, no. So, so um, fat transfer is a very technically tricky procedure and it's been around for a very long time. I mean, at least 40 plus years it's been around. Um, but even to this day, there's a lot of um, mixed uh, feelings about it because, you know, learning how to do it right is probably one of the more difficult uh, things we can do because it's not a, um, it's not an extension of any other procedure that we do. You know, it's like, modifying your face of technique is an extension of a previous face of it, but learning how to do fat transfer well is like its own, you know, sort of complete subspecialty if you, if you um, think of it that way. So for me, I got lucky because I realized the importance of, of volume in the face when I was a resident, this was back in 2004, um, when I realized this concept of, of um, fat transfer and volume. So I spent the next year or two going around the country and, and um, learning and reading and all this kind of stuff so I can figure out how to do it. And then once I started, I never had any bad outcomes with that transfer. Honestly, it's, that's been the one part of our uh, practice that has, um, has stood the test of time. Um, you know, I see my patients from like 15, 16 years ago that I did these, these, the fat transfer on. They still look great. They still haven't needed a second volume replacement. Um, but it's because of the technique is good and because of uh, you know, knowing how to not overfill, not put lumps and bumps into a face, et cetera. Um, so that's, that's the one, one aspect that I think is technically very um, challenging. I think in those cases, if you don't have somebody who does a lot of fat transfer or has a good track record doing it, you're probably safer using a little bit of filler in those areas than you are um, to go down the fat transfer route, you know, let's say yeah. you're, you're not, not coming to me. But the, the point is, I think, um, when you know which is which, well, I think, you know, the, the changes that are related to laxity are the ones that make your face look longer. They're the ones that make the jawline square, the ones that make your chin, you know, the, the double chin happen, all these kind of things. That stuff is all surgical. And then the stuff that makes your face look deflated, like I mentioned, you know, the, the concave temples and hollows under the eyes. And, you know, those, those kind of things are where you put the, the volume, you know, and they're happening together in most cases. They're not like one or the other. But, but the thing is, I think the onset of volume loss starts a little bit younger um, for, uh, um, for, for patients. That's usually something that starts in like the 30s. 30s. After, like, yeah. after 28, mainly, you start losing more collagen and your skin looks a bit older. But I see it in our part of the world, in the Middle East, I even think, uh, I think it's, it starts later. I think 30s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would say probably most women, you know, generally, if you were to make a generalization, 
love their face in their mid thirties. That's, that's like, you know, you lose a little bit of that baby fat in the twenties, the face becomes a little bit more, you, you see a little bit more cheekbone, you get that, you know, and most people, yeah, that, that's kind of the, I would say where people find it, like if they could freeze that period of time, that would be the time that they'd want to stay at. Um, and then you get to the late thirties and beyond. And then that's where, you know, the, that volume starts to constrict a little bit more. And then it starts to lead to looking a little bit more tired. And then subsequently the onset of changes start happening. So, in a, you know, sort of in a, in a conclusion, I think use fillers in a very moderate um, and gentle way. Don't overdo them. You know, it's better to do less than more, you know, and do them in a way that, that covers the different areas as opposed to going in every six months and just putting it into the cheek over and over and over again. Because that's that leads to this, this um, you know, sort of a deformity over time. Another thing, when you get a client that wants to do um, the vertical restore and they have a lot of filler in their face, is it an issue for you to start when you when you when you surgically operate that you find a lot of the filler under the skin? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, you believe it or not, you see the filler, it oozes out of the tissues, which is, you know, but it, but we're in a very specific plane. So we're not going to run into all of the filler that's put in there. You're just going to run into yeah. some of them. One of the things that does happen, though, these fillers because they're technically foreign bodies, you know, I mean, they're, they're not yeah. part natural part, your body from the moment that they're injected starts to um, try to dissolve them. You know, it, it's in the process of trying to break it down and get rid of it. That's what I mean, because that's what your body does to a, to a foreign body. And as a result, it creates inflammation and the inflammation then leads to scar tissue. So in most of the cases of people who've been doing this for a long period of time, you get in there and you're, you're, getting into some pretty hard tissue, you know, scar tissue and things like that, which definitely makes the operation more, more challenging, more difficult, you know? Um, but I have to say so many people have done that. And so many people have done that for, for years before they got there. I, I'm, I'm more or less used to, to, uh, to seeing it, but I remember the first few times I saw it, I was, uh, it was very, I mean, the, the entire texture of the tissue was different because of that, which made um, dissection and, and, you know, um, surgery much more challenging and you have to be a lot more careful. Uh, another question. Um, a lot of people come to you, I'm sure, doing these fillers that have been basically uh, the permanent ones, and which was really common at a certain point oh, in yeah. a lot of yeah, countries, yeah. Middle East and China, and I think till now even in Egypt, it's the, it was the end thing back in the day, you know. Yeah. And now they're suffering the consequences because the filler is moving. They're getting darkness around certain areas. Have you faced such situations where you had to oh. do something you don't like to? No, you I mean, help with that. yeah, you know, I have to say that is, um, that breaks my heart so much when I see that kind of a situation, because, you know, I mean, I can completely understand it from a person's point of view when somebody says, Hey, we've got this, this new filler and it's permanent, you know, and there was, there was a, an era um, where there was a, a filler in the U.S. I mean, the, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of them in, throughout the world that are, haven't even made it to the U.S., but in the U.S. there was one called Artifil. And, um, and that was, you know, supposed to be long lasting. And, and, and uh, but what happened is those patients injected into these different, and then in, you know, a relatively small subgroup would form these granulomas and granulation tissue, which is this kind of hard inflammatory tissue that, that um, would lead to lumps and bumps everywhere. And they're very difficult to remove. I mean, you know, you do steroids, you do this, it usually doesn't take care of it. Uh, oftentimes you need to have surgery to open it up and, and that, and I, I don't have a ton of experience doing it because I never injected it. I, re I personally rejected those, that whole concept of permanent fillers because to me it sounded like a bad idea. Plus I had fat transfer, which was permanent and natural. So I didn't even entertain those ideas. Um, yeah. Then what happened with Artifil is it, because of all this bad, bad stuff that happened, it went out of business, or at least it seemed to go out of business. Then years later, it came out as Bellafil. They just changed the name, but the same product. And now Bellafil all of a sudden, you know, was not Artifil, and people got back on doing it, and patients started, and same consequences started to occur with, with these, these things. So I would say as a rule of thumb, um, silicone, um, you know, these Artifil, Bellafil, all these types of things, I would personally stay away from. They, I, you know, I think it's a much better way if you're going to go down, do something temporary, um, that at least you know that has a, an enzyme that can get rid of most of it than to do something that is um, that might lead to real you know sort of soft tissue deformity that you can't really fix okay and uh, another thing regarding machines like you know in our part of the world and everywhere now there are so many machines like Exilis, like Ultera, yeah. and these are all machines that are very expensive I'm not gonna lie to you yeah. like, everybody, yeah. like you know if you're young start doing these machines they're gonna help you out uh, but what tell me your opinion about these machines and do they actually work? Do they 
actually make the skin much because some doctors say it actually makes the skin more thin and yeah. the heat actually looks good in the beginning but actually it has no effect so i want your honest opinion on this because it's, yeah. it's really costly so let's save a lot yeah. of people a lot yeah, yeah. of money <laughs> you know you're 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 hitting all the important notes um uh not these are all very very um, great questions and these are things that i uh, i feel very passionate about because i think you know at the end of the day this is kind of how i look at i look at what i do as very medical you know i'm i'm treating a person the way a you know a heart surgeon would treat you know a, a blocked vessel or a sinus surgeon would treat a blocked sinus like this is this is important to the person who's who comes to reaches out to us as as a as a patient doctor and i think there's too much uh stuff that's going on out there that is not um they're not giving enough respect to the patient's actual problems and and the solutions that we offer them and i think in the realm of these uh non-surgical devices um obviously it sounds really good right i mean it sounds you, know, you do it you can tighten things up prevent it there's a difference between something sounding good and actually working right so so what i personally do the way i approach these these new technologies is i'm never the first one to get get one and put it in the office like the second it comes out you know i'm not the first one then go tell all my patients hey i've got the latest and greatest thing come and get it i always wait 2 or 3 years um let the thing sit sit out in the market let you know some and then i go and ask all of my colleagues around the country you know nurses and doctors who use the device who have no reason to lie to me about anything and just come and ask them hey what do you really think about this you would be shocked at how many of these devices have never met the point of you know what this is a good device this work really works really well um go to like all therapy thermage you know all these different things um you know when you, when i when i was cuz i was considering cuz obviously i have a facial rejuvenation practice if something like that worked that would be a a massive opportunity for me to have you know all these patients who are not surgical candidates to go down the all therapy route but anyone any time i talk to one of my colleagues about this and and people who do it they said it just you know it's it's very very minimal change and then there's also situations where it actually creates a negative change you know like the ones that you mentioned where we've had patients say their their facial fat melted their skin looks worse you know all that kind of stuff so i've always rejected once i you know investigated i reject rejected things that can that are designed to kind of uh tighten your face right but what i do think is is really good for for people and this is an important point of distinction you know as we said the skin ages independently of all these other things and one of the things that happen with the skin and you alluded to is the collagen of the skin diminishes so the skin gets thinner as we age right so yeah. one of the, one of the really important things of uh, of understanding of how to keep your skin looking young is basically get into a um a pattern a lifestyle of from time to time doing something that's going to injure your skin and let your skin heal right so by injury it doesn't have to be anything extraordinary microneedling yeah. Well, PR, PR, yeah, PRP with, with microneedling is a good good approach that kind of boosts the microneedling aspect of it. But the very the very fact that your skin is getting um is getting a trauma, that trauma whether it's a light chemical peel, whether it's a needle, whether it's um a light laser, when it does that the skin responds by healing and healing means more collagen. So when you when you're you know doing something like that on a regular basis, what you're doing effectively is thickening the skin over time. And yeah. that I'm totally for. We we you know do uh, uh mild techniques like that on you know every 6 weeks to 12 weeks for patients depending on their age and their circumstances to keep their skin looking in addition to sun protection and being on the right products and all that kind of stuff that's kind of a a a different concept but when you're using it when you think you're using it to lift the face you usually are going to be disappointed with the outcomes and i and i do post about this uh, from time to time where i talk about this and then you just look at the comments and they're like one after another um the results are just you know they were they, i didn't see any change you know this happened it was painful it was expensive yeah, yeah. so that's that's my general thought eyes there's a machine that that burns the eye the, like the skin around the eyelids leaves some scarring and then actually yeah, yeah. did you hear about that T one or it tightens it yeah i mean these things are um they they come in different oh, flavors all the all the time um but at the end the any type of result you get from thermal contraction where the where the heat causes the skin to contract is generally speaking very temporary. That's okay. kind of the uh that's that's I would say that's the biggest rule of thumb with it is it's it's too short lived and the same thing for things like thread lips and things like that and um Yeah, I was going to ask you about thread lips because you know yeah. in the state everybody is like majority of doctors are not pro threads versus mm. in Europe it's like the in thing it's like the you know if you have a party at the go get threads but Yeah. I, from my 
like from the experiences I've had so far, I haven't seen anyone with a good result past two months. Exactly. And, and again, you know, I don't do threads. I, I did them um, when I was a, a resident in, um, you know, there, there was a concept called the, there was a company called the contour thread. Um, you know, it was, it was these uh, barbed um, non-absorbable sutures and it hit the, I mean, it was like a big splash. I mean, massive, you know, sort of a n new concept in um, non-surgical. And, if, you know, as a fellow, I, I did a couple cases with it. And the patients were in so much pain with those things. And then, you know, I look at them a few months later or whatever it is, and everything just sagged right back down. And in the meantime, the skin was bunched up and it looked unusual and all that kind of, it wasn't, I mean, so I, I did two or three and I stopped. Um, and, uh, and then two years later, that company went out of business. And again, same thing like with Artifil, Belafil. Then 10 years later, it comes out is now that we have these PDO threads, which are absorbable um, threads. And they have but collagen. This, it, so they, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. The idea is that you put it in and then, um, it, you know, the area where the string is, as your body's absorbing them, they form collagen. But that's not that meaningful of a, of a I mean, sculpture does the same thing. I mean, the, the, creating collagen at the deep layer is not really it's not really with the problem. I mean, collagen is, is happens in the actual skin. As we talked about a lot, loss of collagen makes the skin thinner, but the deep stuff is just the fascia, just losing its integrity, not so much losing its collagen. And, um, and so anyway, as you said, they, they really are, um, I mean, they're pretty costly, you know, and they're, they're temporary. So if you're going to do something, if you're going to do something like that regularly, I think most people would be disappointed with the, the cost to benefit ratio. And ultimately I think, if you see what happens surgically during a procedure like the vertical restore, et cetera, that gives us these, it's hard to imagine anything short of that level of sort of invasiveness and aggressiveness to, that would give any type of meaningful long-term change. Because even, even an average facelift doesn't really give long-lasting changes, you know, and that's, that's something that's, um, you know, so anything like threads and things like that is really not going to be able to do it. No, it's too expensive. Anyways, like I'll give you an example. Like a lot of my friends at this age, like, you know, we hit our 30s, 35. Okay, let's do this machine and that machine. I'm one of them. I tried Othera. I tried Exodus. And let's be honest, after spending all this amount of money, it's not really that much of a difference. And I would rather wait, as you said, and just do the Botox until I go do what I really need, like a vertical prevent or something of the sort. Yeah, look yeah, yeah, exactly. And I don't think every face can handle a filler because some faces are actually already full. And you know what I mean? It doesn't yes. always work. Uh, another 100%. I, I like uh, taking care of skin. And this is a topic I want to yeah. discuss. Because I actually have been watching yeah. your YouTube uh, channel. And uh, you talk <laughs> about skin a lot. And I also saw your wife's beautiful skin and fat transplant. And she had no makeup in the picture. You just posted a few days ago. And that's yeah. amazing. And I always tried. Uh, the, the re By the way, I'm, I'm, I'm an investment banker background. So I have nothing to do with medicine. But I think um, when it comes to... Um, Having this platform, I want to share a lot about skin because I think if in another life, I would have been a dermatologist. <laughs> so this is why I like to use this platform to share more about how you take care of your skin. Yeah. So can, can, can you give me like three things you would advise? I know you have a skincare line that just came yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about no, that. Yeah, how, yeah, yeah. How yeah. do we do? Absolutely. So I think what's interesting is... Um, you know, back to the kind of the first question you asked about specialization and uh, and being, um, you know, all in on one thing. So because my whole world is basically facial rejuvenation, I get a lot of time to kind of contemplate and think about things. So, you know, thinking about what makes a face look young, right? What makes a person look actually like what was why is a 20, 30 year old look like a 20, 30 year old versus a 40, 50 year old? Like, what are the things? So we talked about the two pieces, which was sagging and volume loss, the changes. The other aspect, and we, we alluded to, was the changes that are happening to the skin. So the changes that are happening to the skin, I realized, are you know, the, the loss of, of thickness over time. And that's really why somebody even needs Botox to begin with. Why wouldn't it? I mean, the movement is not the problem. 15-year-olds move their face all the time. 20-year-olds move their face, but they don't get lines, right? Why does somebody, when they get older, start to see lines with movement? It's because the elasticity in the collagen of the skin starts to diminish. Then there's other changes that are happening, which is the, the ability to, or inability to break down pigment and things like that. So your skin starts to see more of the brown spots and the red spots from sun, sun exposure and all that kind of stuff. And then there's this increasing thickness of the top, top layer of the skin, um, they call the stratum corneum, which is a, um, it's kind of like the upper layers of an onion, you know, that, that kind yeah. of dull layer of an onion. Uh, and that creates dullness and roughness to the, to the skin. So these are sort of structural changes that are happening to the skin with time. So when I think about making somebody look younger, I always want to, I, I really want to include 
something to improve the skin because that's when people really look younger, when they have really good skin and they have good facial shape and volume. Then it's like you can't even tell them apart from somebody. So when it comes to skin, my philosophy comes down to a couple of basic things. I think at the, at the foundation, the sun protection is a really important aspect, right? Um, you know, being on a broad spectrum sunscreen, anytime you're out and about wearing hats, whatever you can do um, within your lifestyle, if you can, to kind of protect your, your skin from, from excessive sun exposure, because that really makes a big difference in the long run. Um, it's almost like it absorbs all the sun and then, and then it pays you back later on, you know? So when you're young, to try to um, defend against that that is the best. And then foundationally, I would say, you know, if a patient can get on or a person can get on a Retin-A or Retin-A, um, you know, that's fantastic. That's like, you know, 40 plus years of science research that shows that it, it not only uh, diminishes a little bit of that, that upper layer that we talked about, kind of in a micro peel yeah. type fashion, but it also stimulates collagen to start building up collagen. So pe people who've been on Retin-A or Retin-A for long periods of time see big improvements in their skin over time. Um, and, but very few people can tolerate a retin-A or a retinol because of the, the, the flakiness and the redness and all that kind of stuff that happens. I mean, my experience with it has been maybe 10% or 15% of the patients who I prescribe it to them can actually do it, unfortunately. But my wife, for example, since she was in her 30s, has been on, on retinol. She's been super hardcore about sun protection. Um, and, you can't uh, use and retinol she, when you're pregnant, right? You can't use retinol when you're pregnant. Yeah, I, I, think, I think any of that stuff, any, anything that's like that, you probably would be better. I mean, you know, it depends on who you ask. But I, if it were me, I would probably say stay off that stuff. Um, you know, even anything. hyaluronic acid, even hyaluronic acid. No, I think hyaluronic acid is is fine because that's you know that's just basically stuff that's already in your in your body. Um, but um, you know, moisturizers and hyaluronic acid and stuff like that. But I just put, probably wouldn't do you know prescription level like hydroquinone and all that kind of stuff during during pregnancy. Okay. Um, and that's really and then vitamin C is another one that has been shown to be a really good long term. Um, you know, found uh, thing for skin in terms of anti antioxidants and collagen stimulation, all that kind of stuff. And then take that and then say, all right, well, that upper layer of the skin from time to time needs to be exfoliated. So do some stuff to exfoliate your skin from time. And that could, that could be in the office, could be at home, depending on what, what things you have. But, um, but if you do all that as a basis, that's a pretty solid, you know, um, foundation for things. Problem is a lot of people can't do all, you know, especially the retinol set because of the concentrations are a little bit high for a lot of people. And so that makes it, makes it more, more challenging. But I, I'm a big believer in once you get to a certain age to do little things in the office, take care of your skin at home and be sun protective. I think that's kind of all you need to do and not get too fancy about it. Yeah. And uh, your skincare regime, what does it include? What are the products? How did you create that? So th th this was, this was, I mean, this has been like a passion project of mine. Um, for the last three, four years. So what, what, as I mentioned, I would put people on these different products for a long, you know, you need to be on this, you need to be on that, you need to be on this. And very few patients could tolerate um, the number of steps involved in like a, a, comp, comp, a very comprehensive approach to, to skin. Very few people can handle all the different steps. The cost got very expensive. Um, and if you're out on your own, you're very confused about what you actually need to put on your skin. On, you know, so that all that confusion makes people usually end up doing, you know, starting something, then stopping something, and switching something, and it's kind of they're bouncing around from things all the time. So um, what I what I decided uh, to do several years ago was I thought, you know, why not instead of having a person be on six different things, why not put everything into one bottle? and make life really easy for them. We know the things that are good. We just said retinol is good, vitamin C is good, antioxidant, hyaluronic acid is good, niacinamide is good. You know, all these kind of, we know certain things are, are really helpful for the skin. Why not, you know, instead of making the patient go out and buy all these different things individually, just put it all together and make it really simple for them. So uh, I took, it, took this to a, to a, a, a very high-end um, cosmetic lab, and we've been working on this for the last three years, you know, modifying the, the, the uh, um, the concentration of this and that and all this stuff to make it very tolerable for a lot of people. Because anytime you include a retinol, the, um, the, you know, the, all those consequences of retinol. So modifying it, adding complexes around it, all that kind of stuff, so that you can use it twice a day, simply morning and night, put it under your eyes, put it on your neck, whatever. It's well tolerated. Simply three steps. You wash your skin. You put the, a, a separate vitamin C on, which is like a, com a combination of three different types of vitamin C because I think I'm a big believer in vitamin C. And then it's all in one um, combination of things. Three steps, morning and night, and you don't have to think about anything else. Because, you know, I buy so many products. It's like such a – it's like a process. Face wash, yeah. toner, vitamin C, yeah. serum one, no, serum two, serum 
<laughs> it's costly. Yeah. It's like, well, it's so like, costly. It's so costly. But and I'm a for firm a lot believer of, as well in vitamin C and retinol because I've been using yeah. it for the past two years. And I swear to you, since COVID started till today, like yeah. my skin is something else with the use of these just two products. Yeah, no, 100%. And that's, that's uh, uh, you know, I, I think if my, my thought was if I could get every patient to be on at least a small amount of the retinol, enough to just kind of, you know, do some activity, but not, but and then there's people like yourself and my wife and, you know, a number of people out there that have managed to get themselves on a stronger retinol. Well, they can use that in addition to it. You use that plus a, you know, a retinol. There's nothing wrong with that if you want to get that extra retinol. But for majority of patients, they can't do it. So, uh, you know, doing all this in one system is a lot, a, a lot more beneficial than not knowing if you're on the right track or not. That was the whole idea. I want to take all the guesswork out of it, make everything really easy for the person and, uh, and just get them on something they can do over time. Because that's where, like you said, you've been on it for two years, you're really seeing your skin improve. The longer you stay on it, the more improvement you're going to see in your skin. And, uh, and fortunately, people start and stop. It's like exercise, right? If you, if you go to the gym regularly you know, for years, your body starts changing in a very positive way over time. But if you just do three, four months and then stop, and then go do three, four months uh, and stop, yeah. you know, yeah, you're, you're not going to see the, the long, long-term um, benefits that way. Uh, what about pigmentation? I'm going to talk to you because I'm, I'm from the Middle East. Saudi Arabia is, is basically, my city is sunny all year. We don't even have a winter. Yeah. So the sun is a big part of our life. But and in our part of the world, people are like olive skin. So there's a lot of pigmentation that happens regardless of the amount of sunblock you put. What do you recommend for such a situation? You know, um, so... Um, pigmentation has two varieties. There's this type that comes from sun damage and then there's the type that comes from melasma, right? Those are two sort of different things. Melasma, unfortunately, is very difficult to, to manage, to truly manage because it's so sensitive to, to sun um, and hormone and different things like that. So, um, so I, I put that into kind of a, you know, you really have to be super dedicated to your skin from a sun protection point of view to um, using um, hydroquinone in, in you know, sh certain periods of time and then stopping. And that's like a, that's like a ongoing, you know, the thing when it comes to sun damage, um, you know, just sun spots and things like that, there are, there are obviously, you know, like for example, my product has some brighteners in it, some things that help with pigment and things like that. But, in it, you don't want to be on, for example, you don't want to be on hydroquinone for, for a long period of time because that's just, it actually can make yeah. your skin more hyperpigmented after three, four months of being on it. So what you do is, I mean, there are a variety of different lasers, you know, the IPL, the BBL, um, different things like that because they can actually target sun damage very effectively. Um, so I like for, for true sun damage, I like those, those type of lasers that are specifically for pigment, you know? Um, and, uh, and you do those, you can, you do a series of them and then you can get onto a regimen where you, if you have a lot of that to maintain it, you do it every four months, you know, around the year, um, you know, forever basically, because the thing is with that, you have to think about pigment as we talked about all that sun that you absorb as a, as a young person, it starts to spit out pigment and things like that when the defenses of the skin diminish. So it's like a tree that fall, you know, that loses its leaves. You can't just go there and clean it up one time and expect the tree never to lose another leaf. The, the tree continues to lose, lose leaves as time goes on. So you need kind of that maintenance approach with it. And that's the way I typically, you know, advise the patients on, on, uh, on that to do those type of lasers in addition to being really smart with sun and then also being on products that help kind of diminish some of that pigment. Okay, a question regarding your um, a vertical restore. What's the recovery period? How long does it take? And uh, the recovery oh, process? For, for, for the surgery? Yeah. Oh, so surgery is typically about um, a two-week recovery. Two you know, the, the, yeah. the procedure? The process Oh, the itself? procedure is typically, yeah, the, the procedure, depending on what combinations are done, they're, they're typically around three, four hours, um, you know, depending on what, what combos are done. And the vertical prevent? By itself, it's uh, under two hours, like around two hours or so. Yeah, and, and the restore is, is about two, two and a half hours by itself. Full anesthesia or? No, that's a great question. It's all, all my procedures are done under IV sedation. Oh, amazing. So yeah, really so, so, yeah, so, you know, what, what, what um, I mean, I got lucky because my, in my residency and fellowship days, we, um, we did everything with IV sedation, um, including noses and all that kind of stuff. But the, the reason I love it is because when you do it that way, you take all the major risk out of, uh, out of the surgery. The major risks are the things that, you know, let's say you get a blood clot or you get a pneumonia, you get a, you know, you um, end up in the hospital or ICU, big drug reactions, all that stuff is generally speaking, 
taken off the table when you're doing a light IV sedation. And, uh, and the patients literally recover like this afterwards. You should come to our part of the world. You're too far. <laughs> Seriously. That like, would be you know, an honor, honestly. It would be an honor. It's been such a hassle to travel with the situation I know. It, the world. It you has know? Been, it's been so terrible, honestly. I know we've been in communication with patients from out of, uh, out of the country, and every time we think there's, a, there's an opportunity for them to come, the, the opportunity gets, uh, gets you know, blocked again no, or I whatever it is. I in San Diego waiting for an appointment from you, and she came all the way from Saudi. <laughs> so uh -huh. I'm going to text you her name <laughs> because, uh -huh. you know, it's been, it's been so hard to travel lately for many of us. But honestly, yeah. um, what's nice about you, doctor, is that like, the, the, the messages I got about you were like, he has such a good bedside manner, so proper, so nice. And aside from you being just a doctor, is that a lot of, uh, a lot of your patients um, love your work and love your personality. And this is something that is emphasized a lot from a lot of my followers who are, some are Middle Eastern, some are from all over the world, which is amazing. And it's so nice to I appreciate see. that. No, really, really. It, it, I yeah, think yeah. it also goes, um, uh, sometimes I always say when you choose your doctor, it's also about uh, like um, chemistry. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it's important because I look at these relationships with our patients as very long term. I mean, you know, I, I hear back from like I got a text over the weekend from a patient from, um, you know, I think I did her procedure like five years ago and she has some questions about something, you know, and so we're going to get on a FaceTime and just, you know, it's a long term sort of a, of a situation. And, I'm, and I love that. That's the part of the job that I think is, is the beauty is, is having those relationships with people over the long run, you know. Last question. I know you have to go to your, to yeah. your clinic. Uh, how do you, can, can anyone do a, vir a virtual con a consultation with you? Oh, yeah. We've actually switched to almost all, like the initial consultations are all virtual now. There's just so much more um, effective and efficient for us to be able to see more people that way. Um, yeah. And I love it. I mean, I, I can tell everything that I need to tell and, and uh, it works out beautifully. But yeah, absolutely. Virtual consultations are, uh, um, we, we do them all the time. Yeah. Okay, sounds good. And thank you so much, yeah. for your doctor. And I'd, I'd love oh, to meet great. you soon. I'll be coming to the States hopefully 2022 sometime. And, oh, great. Uh, yeah, we should definitely, definitely meet. I, I studied in Boston, but, I, but I've been to the West Coast many times. But it's, I, I'm more of an East Coaster, but definitely I'm coming to L.A. soon. And perfect, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Would love, love to meet you. And a lot of great questions. I, I really appreciate this. This was a great conversation. And what a great service to all the, uh, all the people uh, out there to kind of just help, help understand all this stuff. I know it's super confusing. Because honestly, there's no point of having a public platform, especially when I'm interviewed to just share just junk. I like to share information that really is useful, especially when it comes to medical care, because I really love skin. Yeah. And I like to see good work out there and I like to share it. So that's oh, why. I appreciate that. Thank you so Thank much. You, it really has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so Take much. Care. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.